We've just stepped away from the Investec Women in Leadership event. This year, we're centered on the courage to change. So what are we as women doing to challenge the patriarchal mindset that dominates both politics and business alike? I'm joined now by two women who are champions of the power in diversity cause and their role models in their respective fields. Fumani Mtembi is a founding member of the Pele Energy Group, Africa's largest 100% black-owned independent power production and development firm. She is also the MD of its research and development arm, Knowledge Pele. And then we have Teresa Oakley-Smith, who is the founder and MD of Diversity, a change management consultancy firm. She has an MA in education psychology and has worked as an academic at WITS for many years before starting her own business. Thank you both so much for joining me. Both of you are founders and MDs of your own successful businesses. Fumani, let's start with you. You started Pillar Energy over eight years ago, and you were one of only five black founders and the only woman. Plus, you weren't even close to your 30s. In fact, I believe you were 25. So give us a taste of that founding story. How did you meet the other founders? Were they initially skeptical to start a business with a woman? Or were they of the opinion that it gave your company an advantage? When we all got together, I think the sort of the best part of the story and the magic of it was that we had a common dream. And that um, was, in a sense, the thing that that enjoined us and made it possible to move beyond, I'd say, very petty things like my gender. Um, Of our five founders, three are cousins, actually. So they'd known each other from birth. the fourth um, member went to university with them, and so he'd known them since they were in their teens, late teens. I was introduced by a friend, actually. So I just um, returned from studying, and they just quit their jobs at the time. And she said, you know, I think you guys have something in common, um, so you should meet up and have lunch and, and see where that goes. And literally, you know, we had a coffee, and it, it was it. You know, we, we made sense to each other. And what we had, which I think a lot of businesses start in a very different way, we had a a dream as opposed to a business plan. And I think when you have a dream, it's much easier to get started. We were able to split, you know, the the equity equally. We we weren't really concerned with the nuts and bolts of the business. It was more about the dream and then the business plan came later. And what was that dream? The dream for us was to transform society through knowledge and power. Um, that is something that we, we had in common. We knew that we wanted to make a difference, leave a legacy, create a new kind of context in which people like ourselves could operate. We wanted, um, I think, to spread what we understand to be the justice dividend and to use our privilege responsibly. And that was enough. And we, we, we knew that the nuts and bolts would follow, but it was important that we understood that we could use the, the instrument of business to advance Um, what is, I think, a much deeper um, cause. And Teresa, your passions lie in breaking down barriers of race, gender, culture, even language. What was it about your experience that awoke your interest in diversity? First of all, teaching at the University at Wits back in the 1980s, around the time that you were probably born (laughs) for money, it was coming to the realization that, that we as South Africans just really didn't know anything about each other, that we were completely a closed book and that we were working as academics and also as students um, completely in the dark. Um, the stereotypes that we had of one another, you know, black students thought all the white students were Boorah and the white students thought all the black students were terrorists in those days. 
So I was really, because I was running a residence as well as teaching, I was really confronted with having to make this place a place for everybody. And so to do that involved trying to get people to understand each other better. And so it was that experience back in those days that made me decide to leave academia and start a business, try and create a business. And I think, as Fumani said, for me, it was also a dream, a dream of making a contribution, a dream of making a difference at a really fundamental level. I mean, it's not enough for us to just have freedom if we're still all living our separate lives in separate boxes. Fumani, I know your journey as a businesswoman hasn't been without its ups and downs. I mean, at one point, you had to put your own savings in to keep your business afloat. How difficult was it to do that? And how do you know when to say, right, enough's enough, this is a sinking ship and we need to abandon? I definitely don't know how to um, abandon ship. And I think if, if we did, we wouldn't be here today. Um, you know, I always say starting a business is almost like... I've never actually sort of physically gambled, but I imagine sitting at a slot machine is like that. And no, don't tell me that because I hate gambling. <laughs> I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's like that. But I think if you sit there long enough, you'll win, right? I mean, what are the chances that you won't win? And it's just about your, your patience and your ability to just stick it out. So, you know, for us, it, we, we don't come from wealthy families. Um, so our startup capital was the little we had. And, you know, I speak about recognizing privilege because it's in the small things. You know, having a laptop is everything to, you know, running a business today. Um, having Wi-Fi a car, connection. Wi-Fi, right? Um, a card to get to meetings. People don't need to know where you actually work from. We, I mean, our office was a garage. Um, and that's where, you know, we got together and planned and, and um uh, you know, sort of put our thoughts together. But when you go out to the world, it's, it's about appearing a certain way and just, you know, having those those assets, in a sense, um, is what enables the, the, the journey. So, you know, from our perspective, and I think youth, right? My life is also very different today to what it was when I was 25. So it was much easier to, to take that risk. Um, so I'm, I'm cognizant of that as well as a privilege. And I'd say to young people, Go for it. Go for it. You know, like you have a lot less to lose. Exactly. You have nothing to lose. It's embarrassing to to have to ask your parents for petrol money and all of that stuff um, when you're meant to be a lot more accomplished. But they bought into the dream, and you know, I think it's it's starting to pay off because they they see that it you know it, it meant something, and we actually put in the work. But you're making it sound quite run of the mill when in fact it's not. Uh, you know, there's a massive lack of entrepreneurial spirit and thinking within our economy. Um, what is it that you did that gave you this courage to start something new, which was incredibly risky? I agree with you. And in fact, we now run, so part of our business is, is about development. So developing the communities that we operate in. And we, in fact, run a, a training program um, that's called Startup Pack. And the point of it is to teach entrepreneurship as a Startup Pack. Startup Pack, yeah, like a, a software startup start pack. pack. Okay. You know, we say the point is to teach entrepreneurship as a life skill because it's actually about being able to survive, being able to innovate regardless of the context that you're in, that you make a business of it is almost secondary, but it, it really should be a mentality, particularly in a country like our own, um, where jobs are, are hard to come by. So... You know, it's hard for me, obviously, to sort of reflect on myself and why it is that we did it, but it, it just became really important to us. I think that's possibly the most important thing that I can say. It's just the, the burning desire to want 
something keeps different. You going. Yeah. I mean, Teresa, you've also had to make some huge personal and financial sacrifices to keep diversity alive. You mentioned in the conference that you've had to sell a couple of homes. The thing about being an entrepreneur is it isn't necessarily an upward trajectory. You know, I started off, as I said, using the pension money I had from Vits, which was minuscule. And um, the business has gone through cycles and there have been up times and there have been down times. And like you putting in your savings for money, I, I had to sell a house at one point because even though the business was doing poorly, I still had so much belief in the dream. Um, so I think that's what, that's what happens with entrepreneurs. You just have to make a plan. You have to make a way. And when I left Vitz, I was a single mother with two children. So it was really very risky. But I just felt that there was this need and that I had to help people recognize the need. Um, and the only way I could do that was through um, getting involved in, in business, through the private sector companies, the public sector, communities. And then and how, how long has diversity been going on for now? 23 years. This is wow. our 23rd year. We started in 1993. And have you seen an increase need for your services? It's been very interesting because... Initially, it was a hard sell and people began to get the idea. And then after 2010, everyone went into this state of, oh, we don't need this kind of stuff. We're a rainbow nation. I don't even see color. What are you coming here with your diversity stuff for? But recently, you know, in, say 2015, 16, I think people have begun to realize more that actually we're not a rainbow nation. That's a complete myth. Mm. that most South Africans don't have any same-status friends and contacts from other races still. The apartheid geography is still pretty much in place. Exactly. And so I think for all sorts of reasons, there is still a need. And I think things like the Employment Equity Act have helped. Um, companies realise that whether they like it or not, they have, ha have to have different kinds of people in their organisation. And to be productive and profitable, those people need to be able to work together. And then more recently, the amendments to the broad-based Black Economic Empowerment Act, I think, have been very helpful. Um, so I think the legislation has been an asset. Teresa brings up Black Economic Empowerment. And Fumani, I know you've got some quite specific views on this and how it was quite, possibly quite a good starting point, but that it, it, it lacks something. Black Economic Empowerment is... I agree from a legislative perspective, a lot has been done to give us all a platform. So, and, and when I say all, I mean all groups that um, were historically subjugated. I think there's a very good platform for us to participate in our economy. What it also does, however, and I, I think this is a natural limitation of the law, is that it, in a sense, defines our role in a very tight way. And unless we can think of ourselves in broader terms, um, the expectation then becomes that we need to conform with this legislation. And so, you know, one of the things that the Triple BE Act, for example, imagines is that you have, in terms of black or female participation, you have owners and you have operators. Right, and you're saying that you're only ever operators. We're saying we want to be both. Mm. When you think of the very types of corporates that we're describing, say for example in the energy sector, those corporates own the entire value chain and they do it because it helps them ultimately to deliver power more efficiently and, and at a better price to the ultimate consumer, but because it makes sense to have that entire stable of services in one entity. What we find, however, is that in the way in which South Africa is constructed, you'll have a lot of black players who own energy assets but do not know how to operate 
a power plant. Similarly, you'll have um, energy companies or, or other, let's say, engineering or construction companies that can contribute to the construction of a power plant, but wouldn't really know what it means to own it, right? And that separation, I think, is, is in fact very disempowering because you can't actually then build competitors that can take on the foreign entities that are currently in the country. So we're locked into this long-term arrangement where we'll be forever dependent because we haven't brought those two identities together. And is that what you're trying to achieve through Knowledge Pele? Exactly. So Knowledge Pele first completes the, that value chain. Um, you know, we have Billy Green Energy and um, Billy Natural Energy. And the, those entities fulfill the, the core of the, the, the energy business, which is to develop, own and operate um, energy assets, right? But we don't don't, energy assets don't exist uh, sort of on Mars. <laughs> you know, they're, they're located in, in communities, um, often peri-urban, rural communities that are geographically and therefore, you know, sort of socioeconomically excluded from the rest of the country. And so what Knowledge Billy seeks to do is, is bridge that gap and ensure that the communities we operate in are transformed as well. And our, our long-term outlook is to have those communities sustain themselves and have a a kind of sort of industrial revolution at the community level that enables them to not depend so much on the power plant for employment or, you know, sort of social investment, um, but to act as, as vibrant, uh, you know, hubs of economic development. That's very interesting because um, I recall sort of in the um, early or the late 1990s, after the business was going, we did some work with the Department of Water Affairs. And the intention was to work with engineers who in those days were all white and male and communities. And the intention was the communities would actually manage the water and especially the women. It was seen as an, a way of empowering women. It never really happened. It didn't get off the ground. I mean, the actual, I think, you know, the, it wasn't properly sustained by the department concerned. I think that was the problem. But our involvement was to was to bring these groups together, so, which was how I got involved. So I'm really relating to what you say. I think as a small as a small business, we're an EME. We're also constrained somewhat by Triple B E E. Um, because um, the, uh, the requirements for enterprise development, for example, I mean one does obviously try that, but as a small company you, you know, your asset base is fairly small and it's difficult to, you know, to actually be, be able to help other enterprises to develop. And I, I think that's, I think the most fundamental part of it is the skills development. I think if organisations really are genuine about triple BEE, most inv they should invest hugely in developing the skills of their employees and of people who are unemployed because that's also necessary and it's also part of the the amended code and I'd, I'd like to see much more emphasis on that than ownership and management and so on. Yeah I suppose the reality is that everything is founded on education. One of the points that I was trying to make earlier in that initial address is that the economy and business are also expressions or a form of cultural expression so to participate in the economy you have to present in a certain way you have to conform to certain things and the majority of our society is is not trained to conform to the cultural norms of required or, or exactly the, the dominant cultural required. norms of the but, corporate sector. But it makes it's it's absurd because those dominant norms are white privilege norms and the majority of the population are African people with different norms. Yeah, I agree. And I think in in addition it's also about creating 
new spaces. You know, uh, the mm. South African economy appears to be completely saturated and we have these massive monopolies or, you know, oligopolies, but there's so much opportunity, you know, for the, you know, big four banks that we have, there's still so many people who are unbanked, mm-hmm. which means there's space for new banks to emerge, um, new of everything. You, you could almost build a parallel economy, you know, in, in relation to everything that exists. And I, I say that, again, in a sense, as a call, particularly to young black people to create those businesses. You know, if, if you want the change, you need to be the change as well. So at the same time, in, in a sense, we're, you know, we're running um, parallel processes in that we, we want existing corporates to transform, but we also need to create our own corporates and need to create spaces in which, you know, young people, women, um, black people can thrive because, we, we, you know, we're responsive to their particular needs. And I think that is in part you know, why we're in business. And I'd hope that more, you know, young black people go into business precisely for that reason to say, we're going to express ourselves differently in the economy. And it's going to be possible in our business for a cleaner to become a manager because we see her and we recognize the ways in which she is talented and has value to offer um, in ways that she may not otherwise be seen. And then my work would be about trying to encourage white people in that organization, if there were any, and Indian and colored South Africans to begin to understand how to recognize that too, so that we have a country where people understand each other in a very fundamental way and that we stop dismissing people as stereotypes because of their job level or job category, that, that we begin to see, I'm not saying we don't see color, we always will see color and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, babies start seeing color from about six months. <laughs> I think it's very disingenuous to suggest yes. that we don't see color. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. But I think but that color is not race, right? It, yes, and that's, so color exactly. is, is, uh, there's nothing else to it. You know, you have brown hair. I've not said anything in mm. saying that. So, the, and I think that's what we're trying to break down: that the race is a construct, yes. and we need to recognise that construct um, and grow together. Because mm. you know, I agree, and maybe it's not a. In my life, it's not even post 2010. I think since matriculating, I've experienced distance from my white friends. Mm. Right? So you go to school. You have white friends, you're on a sort of multiracial context. And once you leave school, something happens, you know, where you have to sort of find your tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that distancing also makes it hard for us to work together at a later point. And I'm not really sure what needs to happen. And I guess experts like yourself would know. I was about to say, Teresa, can you unpack yes. that distancing? I, mean, I, the, I, I don't want to label you, but millennials, people of your kind of generation have, have really shaken up the workplace because you're not prepared to be assimilated. You're not prepared to just, you know, go with the flow and have us change your name so we can pronounce it easily (laughs) and whatever. So I I think it's about now our work is not so much about workshops, but it's about having very meaningful dialogues. It's about getting people together and getting them, helping them through that uncomfortable conversation. Mm -hmm building sufficient trust so that people can put on the table how they really feel about working, whether it's in a corporate, a bank or whatever it is. Therese, you spoke about um, having environments that encourage Mm. um, more diversity Mm. uh, within the corporate space. Mm. What sort of environments are you talking about? Well, I think, you know, if you you realise that people come to work, 
with intersectionality. So you come with your religion, you come and maybe that's very important to you. You come with your race and any cultural aspects to do with that. You come with your gender. So things like if you look at gender, you know, do you provide sanitary protection for the women that work with you. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if somebody suddenly gets their period in the middle of the day, do they know that in, there'll be something in the toilets that they can use? If I'm a woman breastfeeding and I've had to come back to work, is there somewhere private and with proper ablution facilities where I can express milk for my child? Rather than on the toilet seat? Yes, rather than on the toilet seat, which many women have to do. I was impressed to hear that your organisation does provide that. And Fermani, although you fall into two previously disadvantaged categories, that of mm-hmm. being a black and a female, <laughs> you classify yourself as a privileged person because, as you've mentioned... I'm interested in that. Yes, well. <laughs> um, you, you had a great education, you had um, access to networks and hence employment. So what do you think the crucial things are that we need to do as a country to make that, that so-called privileges commonplace? I don't know if I think I'm a privileged person in general, but I, I recognise the privileges that I've, I've had, right? Right, there's a, there's um, a distinction. You know yes. what I mean? Um, and I think... I recognize those privileges because I think responsibility flows from that. So it's, it's, it's not an, because I think it's also very possible and, and I think would probably go unchallenged if, if someone said, look, I'm black and female, what more do I need to do? You know, like really, how do I need to serve? I've already sort of come from a, a place of, um, disadvantage, disadvantage or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And those things are true. Um, but there's something about the time, um, I think, or the, the time that I was born um, in, in terms of its um, historical place in South Africa. And it meant that if you were sort of just the right person at the right time, all the doors would open for you. And I really feel like that's been the story of my life. It doesn't mean um, I've had a sort of a cushy path, um, but, it, 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 you know, with, with just the right amount of effort, um, things have, have been possible for me in ways that I think really wouldn't have been. And, and not just for other black females, but even for white males. Um, and so in recognizing that privilege, I think comes responsibility. Uh, and so, you know, when you talk about what the state's response should be, I think I, I have to agree with everyone who spoke today on the question of education. And I'm really sad about how badly um, we've mm. gotten it. Um, but education is, it, it really is, it's the foundation, right? Mm. What gives me some hope is that, you know, in, in the communities in which we work, we find that we're often, we're starting to deal with a new and I think really poorly represented group of people who are possibly sort of high school dropouts. Mm. They're not employed um, and are, you know, not old enough to earn any sort of state grant so you know they, they don't have any form of income and very often those people are kind of they're just they're ignored kind of lost. yeah they're lost right and there's also the sense that they have nothing to offer um and they've been so miseducated that they can't be retrained and and you know um integrated back into the economy and i think my experience is is that actually that's not the case. I'm just thinking of a a young guy that I know who worked at Checkers as a packer and he put himself through matric and he ended up going to Oxford. 
Wow. He's come back from Oxford with a master's degree. In what? Incredibly bright guy in political philosophy. And he's now doing his PhD. He's back in his... his. But he was a, a shelf packer at Checkers. And he fitted exactly into that profile of the guy just sitting there and, you know, he didn't have matric, he didn't have hopes, he didn't have anything. So, I mean, his story is one of so inspiring that I think that's so interesting to think of there being another layer of people who need education, a different kind of education. And I because think the country could benefit. I think it's such a shame that they, that there's been such a massive uh, shutdown of technicons and things where you might not have been able to get your matric or you might not have uh, the sort of results that send you off into um, a tertiary level education, but you are, you could still become a, a plumber, a carpenter, an artisan, and yes. a, of whatever sort, and in fact make a lot of money and and, and be creative and, and build an industry. I mean, it's, it's, it's very short-sighted. Also, this particular generation of people that we're talking about also represent not only a huge challenge to us, but unless we deal with that challenge, they represent a huge threat. Because I can tell you that I sense anger rising. And people are not comfortable with the fact that they're being so totally marginalized. So I think it's really important that, and hopefully it's not too late, that we tackle this huge inequality that we see in South Africa. I think there's a unique opportunity for, of course, the state, um, but also the private sector Definitely. to, you know, to intervene. Because mm. this is where, so going back to the question of triple BE, this is where you get your skills development points from. Look, the whole conversation around um, gender inequality is very related to race, but I need to bring it back to women because that's what we're here to talk about. In an attempt to do that, there are a lot of challenges inherent to being a female entrepreneur. And I'd like both of you to explain some of the ones that you faced and, and what you've learned from them. Let's start with you, Fumani. Look, I think the first thing is people, men don't take women seriously. Um, it is very common in my industry to attend a meeting and have all the men address each other and not you. Um, so, you know, I'll be sitting there and they'll all have their backs turned um, and they'll be having a conversation amongst themselves. Because how, do you, how do you not get angry with that? Is it, uh, who's um, Donald Trump's ex-wife? You know, you don't get angry, you get even. Life is a, is a long game. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that in that moment, it's not the last time I'm interacting with you. Um, and so I'd rather you eat humble pie at a later point. And very often it, it's soon enough, you know. <laughs> but that's just on a on a personal level. I do think that collectively we need to come together Mm. you know i I think that we're we're missing our collective power the kind of power that would act on those men um regardless of where they are so that they know that that behavior is just not acceptable but i want to um really agree and 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 build on what on what you're saying because uh, and i'm i'm assuming that the situation is more difficult for you because not only are you a woman but you're a black woman so i'm a white woman so i have my privilege but it's still been very difficult a i agree that you don't get taken seriously by men often i've had to work twice or three times as hard as, as, as male competitors to gain a contract. I've had to bend over backwards to actually make sure that my delivery is 10 times better. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where you've had to go to a bank and try and Ask raise a loan <laughs> because, you know, your client hasn't paid you on time. And, you know, you've got a key client and they're three months late paying you mm. and you have staff to pay. Mm. As a woman, it is virtually impossible. It is virtually impossible. I think it's much harder 
as a female. And I really like the idea that um, I think we should come together. I think I, I don't. it's going to be hard, and I think that's part of what my work is about. Even establishing a woman's bank, if enough women were interested in it. Yes, that seemed to get I quite mean, a lot of excitement that, in the yes, audience. I thought that was a very, very significant idea. We are actually the controllers of the purse strings in the domestic environment, and that is so 100% true. And I would say now, I would say at least 90% of of people of my generation are, are bringing in a dual income and yes. often the woman is bringing in more than the man yes um, but yet when we are, when we do have to approach institutions um, of power we feel somehow belittled yes. or we or we somehow lack our courage there needs to be a fundamental shift in yes. in an appreciation of the power that we actually hold yeah. a real power you know I mean I was thinking when people were talking about that that one of one of my clients is a, a very large retail company and they only have one woman out of 14 on a board. And I remember challenging them by saying, well, who does the shopping? Yeah. You know, who decides what, what, what they're going to purchase? It's not the guys. Well, occasionally it might be the guys, but it's women. Women hold the purse stream. Women go into supermarkets and do the shopping. Why are they not represented? Why are their voices not heard? I, I mean, it's... Am I missing something? I mean, <laughs> I think our banks are incredibly spoiled. They have a lot of corporate clients, um, which is why they really struggle to recognize us when, you know, we, we raise money as women, um, raise money as startups, because frankly, they're spoiled, you know, and, and, and so they that, don't need to take on the risk. They, mm. they just don't, <laughs> no. right? They don't. And, and that's the thing about this dual economy. And as women, we represent that, that second economy, you know, we're, we're new, we're a new risk. Um, the things we want to do in the economy are new, but you know, everything that we, we, we do and how we present is new. We can be disruptive. And so, while we can ask for change, we can also be the change and we yes. can create these institutions that, yes. yeah, you know, really understand us. On that note of be the change rather than ask for change, rather than wait for it. Teresa, what is your dream for the women of South Africa? And what words of encouragement can you give those who look up to you? It's very difficult to be a woman in South Africa because the of the amount of violence that's perpetrated against women. Um, and I think one of the things that we need to do as women is, is stand together and actually take our power. I mean, one of the amazing things today about the conference was that that was reiterated over and over. We've got to own our power. We mustn't be afraid of, of using our power. But I think we can only do that if we can join together as black women, Indian women, white women, women with disabilities, um, and work together and, and, and see the, understand each other, then that becomes possible. And Fumani, you were quoted in the press saying this, we believe we have seen the future, we have touched the future. It is our responsibility to make that manifest in today's world. So what challenge um, would you like to put out there to our women listeners to encourage them to be a part of the future that you have seen? Definitely as you know, one of five entrepreneurs and being the only female, what I see very often is that women are quite risk averse. They're incredibly bright. The majority of our team, so I mean, Billy today is a team of 25. It's not just the five of us. And of those 25, five are men. Wow. Because women are incredibly, they're bright. Mm. They're talented. They're our capable. head of engineering, our head of um, uh, asset management, these are all women. And so what always 
stands out for me is that we just don't want to take a bet on ourselves. You know, we just don't take a bet on ourselves. And all these institutions are growing on the back of the efforts of women. Incredibly hardworking, incredibly bright, but risk averse. And I think the challenge is to say, take that risk. Take the risk on yourself. Take Mm. that risk. Take a chance on yourself. There's a reason why 54% of graduates are women. We can do it. And it's just a matter of taking the risk. Well, ladies, it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you both. Thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the best in your singular, led, quite similar visions of how we could make this a more equal and beautiful country. Absolutely. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you very much.